Thank you, Trevor. Good evening, everyone. Uh, if you were here this morning, you will have been part of us looking at the sort of devastating destruction and disastrous end to the, the nation of Judah. And, and we thought about how the monarchy came crashing to an end and how a key city was now left lying in ruins and the people of God were in a, a place of exile. But if you were here this morning, what I need you to do is kind of uh, park that part of the story. Um, because this evening we are jumping forward hundreds of years. Uh, and I know that that frustrates the life out of some of you, um, because you have told me that. Um, but, as, but as Trevor has explained, the reason we are doing that is, in fact, next Sunday is the official day of Pentecost uh, not the original day of Pentecost, but it's the day in the, the 2011 Christian calendar whenever we remember and recall the significance of that event that is recorded for us in Acts chapter 2. So can I invite you to turn there in your Bibles? It's page 1093 in the Pew Bibles. And so for the next three services, actually tonight, next Sunday morning with Tim, and then next Sunday night again, we are going to spend, spend some time in this book reflecting on, on the God-given gift that sort of sparked the birth and the growth of the church. Now, as we know, this gift didn't come as a total surprise. It, or to be more accurate and more appropriate, he had been expected. Jesus had promised to send this gift. But his arrival and his impact were truly remarkable and life-changing, not only for the first disciples of Jesus Christ, but for all those who have chosen to follow him subsequently. And that includes many of us here this evening. And what I want to do tonight is uh, look at how this gift enhances, confirms, inspires and empowers. Now that, this is not all that the gift of the Holy Spirit does. I know that. But I just want to hang it on these four uh, things this evening as, as we look at Acts chapter 2. And six weeks ago, at the end of Easter, we did spend a Sunday evening look at the, looking at the first chapter of Acts. I don't know if you were here that night. And so I just want to retrace our steps a little. Because after his resurrection, the Bible tells us that Jesus spent 40 days speaking into the lives of his followers. 40 days of communicating really important and vital information to them. But then he left. But he didn't leave like anyone else leaves. It says that he ascended into heaven before their very eyes. And it was mysterious, it was miraculous, and it was magnificent. But what now? Where do the disciples go from here? What, what happens next in their story? Well, during that 40-day period of instruction, Jesus had said lots of sort of mind-bending, mind-stretching things. But two stand out. The first is found in verse 5 of chapter 1, where Jesus said, In a few days, you will be baptized with, or in some translations, you will be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 8, Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. 
And so as Jesus said this into the disciples' lives, they realized that something very significant was going to happen in the near future. And so we we reflected on the fact that what the disciples did was they gathered together and they waited. And they prayed. Which are always good things to do whenever you're slightly unsure about the future. And so they gathered and they waited and they prayed. And so let's read the first 13 verses of Acts 2 to find out what did happen next. And and we'll keep our seats because I'm going to make some comments as we go along. Verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came. Now, Pentecost was an annual harvest feast that took place 50 days after Passover. It was one of those pilgrimage feasts. In other words, people came to a central location, to Jerusalem. To celebrate together, to give thanks for the completion of the grain harvest and later on to also mark the giving of the law to Moses on Sinai. And so the city where the disciples were waiting and praying was a city that was heaving with people, teeming with crowds of people. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Now who exactly are the all? Who are the all that were together? Well, it's a little unclear, but most people think that if you glance up or across uh, to verse 15 of chapter 1, it was this group of believers numbering 120. They were all together. Verse 2. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues or other languages as the Spirit enabled them. And it must, have, it must for us in many ways be so hard to imagine what that was like. But it says that it all happened suddenly. So it was without warning. There was no lead in. Suddenly. They all heard a recognisable sound. They saw a strange sight and they discovered a multilingual speaking ability. But whatever was going on, the central point of these moments and the bit that we should not miss is this, that all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now remember, the Holy Spirit had been active and present ever since the beginning of time. The Bible says he was there at creation. We know that in the Old Testament he was there in various ways in different people's lives. He was there at the birth of Jesus. He was present throughout the life of Jesus. He was with the disciples. But in Acts 2, we confront a new dimension of the Holy Spirit's presence and activity. He comes here in a new way. And he invades the lives of those first Christians. And the reference to wind and fire are really important in those verses that we just read. Because they kind of help us to understand, well, what did that mean that the Holy Spirit invades or came into or filled? What what does it mean? Well, the imagery here is, is important. As you're probably aware, the Greek and Hebrew words for spirit can also mean wind and breath. Pneuma. And ruach. And they imply, or one of the things they imply is this idea of a fresh 
blast of life, of renewing life and energy. And therefore, this sound, like a violent wind, creates the idea that as the Spirit comes and fills these disciples, God was injecting, or God was breathing, or God was blowing into his disciples a new dynamic dimension to their lives. It's a bit like that powerful scene in Ezekiel 37. The valley of dry bones where it says, where God says, I will put my spirit, I will put my spirit, I will breathe into and you will live. This idea of a renewing of life. And so for these believers in Jerusalem, this experience, and it was an experience, this experience meant that they were now more alive than ever. More alive than ever. There was an added vibrancy to their spiritual lives. A vibrancy that hadn't existed before. And so the Holy Spirit enhances life. And then fire. Fire in the scripture, as you know, is is very often a symbol of God's presence. His immediate presence. So, for example, the burning bush, Exodus 3, the pillar of fire for the children uh, in in the desert. And therefore, these things, and and it it says there were things that seemed to be like tongues of fire. They are, at, at one very definite level, a sign that the presence of Almighty God is now a constant with these disciples. Jesus might have gone... But his Holy Spirit is now with them. But not only with them, in them as a tangible reminder. Listen, you're not alone. The Holy Spirit is with you. This ever-present helper, comforter, counselor, guide. The Holy Spirit, therefore, confirms God's presence. And notice that in those verses, I think it's verse 4, it says that these tongues of fire separate And come to rest on each of them. And that's important. Because there were no exceptions. And therefore as we celebrate Pentecost. We are reminded and should rejoice in this. That as a result of the unique event of Acts 2. Every Christian is. Baptized with and filled with the Holy Spirit. Every Christian. And therefore every Christian can experience and enjoy this new dimension of life. This vibrancy that the Holy Spirit brings. And every Christian can be far more aware of God's immediate and intimate presence in their lives as a result of what happened here. And the exact nature and implication of this new dimension and presence is then spelled out and explained in the rest of the book of Acts, for example, and in the rest of the New Testament. But for now, let's go back to that third aspect of this original phenomenal event. Where they began to speak, it says, in other tongues or in other languages. Let's, let's read on. Verse 5. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard the sound, a, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? You see, clearly these tongues are very different from those referred to in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. But 
But this ability to speak in the heart language of the international crowd that is gathered in Jerusalem at this time is still an unnatural or rather a supernatural thing. These disciples hadn't been to any language classes. What, and that's why the final phrase of verse 4 is it says it's so critical that we understand it's, where it says as the Spirit enabled them. In other words, they were only able to do this not in and of themselves, but because they were being empowered by the Holy Spirit to do it. And in Luke 24, just before his ascension, Jesus said to the disciples, listen, I want you to stay in the city because whenever you're in that city, you will be clothed with power from on high. And so here, as the disciples open their mouths, and as they start speaking in other tongues and in other languages, they are left in no doubt the waiting's over. The waiting that Jesus said we were to do and then be clothed with power from on high, it's over. Because this is unnatural. This is supernatural what is happening here. The power has been received. The power is now flowing through their veins. The promise has been fulfilled. So they heard what sounded like a violent wind is what the text says. They saw what seemed like tongues of fire. They could have been mistaken. But when they opened their mouths, they realized this is real. This is really happening. And this has to be the Holy Spirit. Because this is powerful at every level and sense of the word. And so people did sit up and they took notice. And this ability took everyone by surprise, which is apparent from the first two words of verse 7. Utterly amazed. The crowd were astonished. As I'm sure the disciples were, and it would have been great if Dr. Luke, the author of Acts, had inserted some comment regarding the disciples' reaction to this newfound talent. But he doesn't. I mean, can you imagine being able to speak fluently in Portuguese without ever having studied or or, or reading it? And the crowd, it says, they're just bewildered. But let's read on. Verse 8. Then how is it that these Galileans are able to do this, that each of us hears them in our own native language. But the the reason for the bewilderment is not an entirely complimentary one. It's not just that anybody could do this, but what caused such a stir and a deep intake of breath was the specific people in question who were doing it. Aren't all these, it says in verse 7, who are speaking Galileans. Galileans, it would seem, were considered an uncultured bunch of people. They were not renowned for their learning or grasp of their own language, never mind anyone else's. And so the question that's asked in verse 8 appears to be a a fair one. How is it that each of us hears these Galileans speaking to us in our own native tongue? And whatever else is going on here, what you come up against is this idea that tends to crop up in Scripture on a regular basis, that God challenges stereotypes. He rattles our tendency to pigeonhole particular human beings. God often uses the unexpected. He uses the unlikely to accomplish his purposes, to take the lead at key moments, to achieve great things on his behalf. It's Galileans who are multilingual and that throws everyone. You see, when the Holy Spirit fills a life, 
that person is empowered to do incredible things irrespective of their background, their upbringing, their social status, their intellectual understanding, or the prejudiced opinions of others. When the Holy Spirit fills a life and enables people to do incredible things, then people sit up and take notice. And in verses 9 and 10, we then have a list of all the people groups who are impacted by this. Now, whether all the disciples could speak all of the languages or whether certain disciples could only speak certain languages is unclear. But it doesn't matter, actually. But what is crucial is to observe the content of their speaking. Look at verse 11, where the crowd says, We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. The literal translation of verse 11 is this. They were speaking the greatness of God in our own tongues. And you know, one of the key signs of a spirit-filled life, or one of the key signs of a spirit-filled church for that matter, is a tangible desire and joy in declaring the wonders of God. Spirit-filled Christians express the greatness of God. It's just what they do. Spirit-filled Christians affirm what God has done. They celebrate his characteristics. They praise him verbally. They do it in prayer. They do it as they speak with and to others. And they do it when they gather together like this and express their vocal appreciation of God in song. The Holy Spirit inspires praise. And the crowd in Jerusalem that day listened. And they were struck by this. They were struck by these believers declaring the wonders of God in their midst. And they reacted. It provoked a reaction in the crowd. In fact, a variety of reactions. And for me, and I don't think this is reading too much in it, these are still the general reactions we encounter today whenever we speak of God, whenever we speak about God to those who are not yet Christians. Verse 12, it says this, amazed and perplexed. And there's no doubt that some of us have come across both of those responses. That some people are taken by the wonders of God. And I realize for many of us that's rare. But there are those who go and speak of the wonders of God and they receive an astonished reaction. As people hear about what God has done for the first time, they respond positively. They're amazed by it. They're captivated by it. They're struck by it. Whereas there's others who are perplexed. Left scratching their heads. Puzzled. Unsure. Confused. They just don't get it. I'm sure you've had that experience. And therefore a question like the one that we find at the end of verse 12 is a familiar one. What what does this mean? It's a good question. And then as the text goes on, we know that Peter stands up and he goes on to explain exactly what it does mean to those who are genuinely interested. And we do need people like that who can explain what it means. In fact, we need to be people who can do that. But there was another initial reaction. Amazement. People being perplexed. But look at this one, and we all have come across it. Verse 13. Some, however, made fun of them. Ridicule and rejection are not foreign concepts. There are still many people today who react this way to the gospel. And to any context where God is declared, where God is exalted, there are people who just make fun of it. 
And that shouldn't surprise us. It's disappointing. It's frustrating. can leave us embarrassed. But that response should not be unexpected. And right from the start of the church, this has been the experience. In fact, and I only discovered this as I was preparing for this, rejection of the gospel is a theme that's found throughout the book of Acts. It appears in every chapter except two. And in Acts 2, those who did reject the message mocked the disciples. Why? Because they were convinced they drunk too much wine. Today, as we stand up for what we believe, as we affirm the goodness and greatness of God, there are still people convinced that we're off our heads, that we're not thinking straight. Many people make those comments. But it shouldn't stop us. And it didn't stop the disciples. Peter addressed the crowd. He spoke from scripture. And ultimately, what does he do in it? He draws attention to Jesus, his death, his resurrection. And in a sense, Peter was just living out, fulfilling his commission. Where Jesus said, you'll receive power. And then what will you do? You'll be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And you know, another clear indicator of a spirit-filled life is one that points to Jesus. Or it's one that points others to Jesus. And in our own strength, that's impossible. But Pentecost reminds us that we are filled with the Holy Spirit who does what? He empowers our witness. And as we we leave here, in a way, let's not forget that that is, in fact, who we are. We are Christ's witnesses. In each and every context and situation and circumstance that we find ourselves in this week, that is who you and I are. As Christians, we are Christ's witnesses in action, word, and deed. But back to the diversity of people all being able to understand what was said. It's unique, there's no doubt about that. But it's also a significant moment in the big story. Genesis 11 tells the tragic story of Babel, and we did look at this as part of our Essential Word series. The place where God confused the language of the whole world and created major misunderstanding. But as you read Acts 2, there are many who sense here a deliberate and a dramatic reversal of what happened at Babel. That in Jerusalem at Pentecost, the language barrier is somehow supernaturally broken down. There is now mutual understanding. And what happens 3,000 different people of different nations, languages and cultures are drawn together into one church. As a result of Pentecost, there now is potential unity as people respond to the good news that's proclaimed to them in the power of the Spirit in their own heart language. And in Acts 2, as the Holy Spirit fills the disciples, they are able, somehow, they are able to speak to this rich diversity of people And somehow, their listeners understand. And so as Christians, here today, living in the wake of Pentecost, and therefore, as we believe, filled with, filled by the Holy Spirit, we are Christ's witnesses. And therefore, as we declare the wonders of God, as we tell the Jesus story, his death and his resurrection, we believe that by his Spirit, God does bring understanding. That people from every tribe, tongue and nation do respond so that Christ's church that was launched in Acts can still be built right across this planet today. 
And so as we prepare for Pentecost and celebrate the gift of the Holy Spirit, let us together as a church and as individuals give thanks that this gift enhances our lives, confirms God's intimate and immediate presence in our lives, inspires praise to rise from our hearts and to flow through our mouths, and that this gift empowers our witness here, out there, and to the ends of the earth. But if, as a Christian, you're here this evening, and this all sounds fine, but if you were really honest, you sense that you've lost an awareness of these realities, that there's not a vibrancy to your spiritual life, That there's not that constant awareness of God's close, near presence. That praise doesn't come from within. You struggle with it. That your witness doesn't feel very empowered. Then I do invite you to ask God for a fresh filling of his Holy Spirit. I believe that is biblical. Paul goes on to talk about going on being filled with the Holy Spirit. And there's lots of reasons why we need to be going on filled with the Holy Spirit. But if tonight, as you look at that list, and as you reflect in your own life, if you sense that you do need God to fill you afresh with his Holy Spirit, then just in these moments of silence, I invite you to do that. And then I'd like to lead us in a prayer. Come, Holy Spirit. Ignite our hearts. Inflame our souls and kindle our spirits that we may burn anew. Overcome our timid and tepid faith with these encouragements of your presence and your power. Warm up all that is cold or frozen in us. Give us the flame of lively living and believing. O Spirit of God, take our words and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. And take our hearts and set them on fire. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.